So I'll invite you to take a Bible and to open it to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 21 today. Luke chapter 21, you'll find it on page 880 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. And we'll read the chapter in its entirety. Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid or terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and the wrath against this people. They'll fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. For there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you, your, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that they come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place 
and to stand before the Son of Men. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And that's what will conclude our reading for today. For those of you who haven't been with us the last few weeks, we're in what is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. He knows that the end of his life is now getting not just days away, but merely hours away, and he's preparing his disciples for that reality. But they're not the only ones in Jerusalem. It's festival time, and so people from all over the world, Jewish believers, would travel back to Jerusalem for a week-long celebration of Passover. And so the temple is packed and crowded. There's all kinds of people. Anyone who lived nearby was there, and then they were joined by people who lived far away who wanted to participate in all of the festivities. And so Jesus is sharing what are some of his final words to those who know him and have been following for a period of time. And he's trying to prepare them ahead of time for what's about to take place. In the previous chapter or two, he was preparing them for what was going to happen to himself. He told them that it's only a matter of days before he'll be betrayed, he'll be killed, and then he'll rise again. What we read about now primarily describes something that would happen after that, but still within the lifetime of everyone who was listening. They were in a huge facility, the temple, rebuilt by the people of Israel, but then also helped by Herod and, 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 and built in an elaborate way where now people could come and celebrate. Hundreds of thousands of them at Passover time could be here. And he's looking around at the stones and he's saying, all of these stones, there's coming a day when there won't be any of them standing on top of each other. What you see is, as massive and beautiful is actually fleeting. And there's, a, there's a, a definite time in which it's going to come down. And this happened as a matter of history, 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. In A.D. 70, the Roman Empire came, sieged, and then sacked Jerusalem. And the very temple that every one of them would have been looking about and said, you know, this building's going to last for thousands of years. Jesus warned them ahead of time that there was going to be a time in which no stone would be left upon another. So while we might initially read it and say, wow, this is a dark passage. This is, uh, he's talking about a lot, a lot of not good things that are happening. The compassion in the passage is that he is warning people well ahead of time that this is going to happen. And so in his love for them, he's preparing them for that reality because you won't want to be there when this goes down, is what he's telling them. It's going to be a dark time, and you don't want to be there when it comes and when it happens. But before he gets into that, he, he notices something as he's in this temple, and he looks out, it says he saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box and a poor widow who put in two small copper coins. And he highlights her and says that she has given more than everyone because she's contributed, they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has given everything that she had. And the whole time he's been preparing the people that not everything is the way it might appear. And so here's another example of you might look in this large crowd and see someone well-dressed and able to do something good and you'd think they have it all together. I mean, they're living the good life. I wish I was like them. And Jesus is saying that a lot of that's appearance. Look at this widow. She doesn't have a lot. She's at the 
end of her resources. And she gave everything that she had to live on. Saying, God's not tricked or deceived in the ways that we are. We can't ever put on an appearance or a show for him. He sees right through all of us and knows exactly what's in our hearts. It's not bad that the rich were putting in what they gave, but what he's saying is he sees beyond that. And he sees this person who might, on a first glance, people would say, oh, I really, I I wouldn't want to be her, and I wouldn't want to be in her shoes. And yet Jesus draws our attention to her, say, that's sacrificial giving. That's generosity at a level that almost everyone here of hundreds of thousands of people who traveled, some of them thousands of miles to be here, still don't have in their heart. That they would not be willing to do what this very woman is doing. Out of her poverty, she gives what she has to live on. And Jesus highlights her sacrificial giving. Now, for me, the question, though, that I was arrested with all week is, in observing it, why didn't he stop her from doing it? Just days before, he saw in the temple the the exchange of business happening where people were taking advantage of others, and he turned the tables over and said, hey, this is, you've made my house a den of thieves, and it's supposed to be a house of prayer, and he put an end to it. And here, he is the person who can see what no one else can see, is also about to tell everyone that whether for the rich or the poor, this is all a bad investment. This isn't something that no matter how much you give to, this is all going down. This isn't what you want to primarily invest your resources or your life in. And so I'd almost imagine, okay, so you could have gone up there and said, hey, wait, 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 <laughs> don't do this. Keep, keep it. There's, there's something more you can do with it because this is all coming down anyway. But he doesn't. And that just arrested me all week. Why? Why didn't he, if he could have, stop her from doing it? I don't want to answer that immediately. I just want you to sit with that a little bit too and wrestle with it. But he highlights that it is in part because it was out of her poverty that he highlights this gift and says, look at that. She's giving everything. The next thing he goes on to describe when he now gets to the details of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. It says, as we're reading it, you know, we'd be thinking, I mean, this sounds horrible. How how do you get out of this? This, You're describing the darkest of days. But Jesus in verse 13 says something that is surprising. If you look at verse 13, you're hearing all this bad news, but then he says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds to rely fully on God in this time. My paraphrase. So as he describes what's going to happen just a few decades later, and most of it dark, most of it serious, but he says to his disciples, this is actually an extraordinary opportunity for you to bear witness. And so, well, bear witness to what? <laughs> what, what is the possible thing that they would be able to witness to when everything around them is crumbling? When there's confusion and chaos, uncertainty, and it says that, I mean, it, the terms that are used, it, it's not just going to be, you know, one wall taken out. I mean, 
This is going to be brought down to rubble, to ashes. But he's saying, just like this woman, out of her poverty, gave everything she had, out of the ashes of what's going to take place in Jerusalem, there's going to be an extraordinary opportunity to bear witness to someone and something that is greater than what everyone's eye at that moment can see in the building of this temple. So it, it's, it's serious, but there's an opportunity that the disciples of Jesus will have to bear witness to the truth that all of Jesus' message of what he said was really true, that he warned them about this ahead of time, that he can be trusted, and that the way in which this is about to come down and this has an end date to it, his kingdom and his message has no end, can never be destroyed, is eternal, and is the real thing that we should therefore invest our time and effort and our lives into. They're going to have an amazing opportunity in the darkness of this to bear witness to that. And we get frustrated when we realize that life is like this. But more often than not, it's true. The stories that compel us the most are the ones of overcoming. The ones not where someone has no conflict and, and no struggle and no issue and no pain, but when we see someone who experiences pain and struggle and darkness and yet is not overcome by it, but overcomes it. And Jesus is saying to all of them that it's not a good thing what's about to happen, but God has an ability to bring beauty from ashes, to bring a, a witness out of it that is enduring and lasting that couldn't quite be otherwise. I mean, we think of it just in an ordinary way in, in regular activity when we think about, you know, celebrating triumphs of athletes, right? You know, part of what made the sweetness of the breakthrough of finally a Cleveland team winning a championship was sweet because it had been so long since that had ever happened. <laughs> the endurance of futility year after year and decade after decade is part of what was written into the story to say that makes this even sweeter. Some of you probably don't follow the U.S. men's national team quite like I do, but we're trying to compete for the World Cup, and we didn't get started on a really good foot. We lost our first two games, and our coach got fired, and we had our next game just on Friday, and it was a do-or-die situation. Like, if we don't win this, we're just not likely to qualify for the next thing. And we went out and won 6-0. to zero. That's a high-scoring game in soccer. <laughs> and it was an 18-year-old who scored one and developed three of the other goals in the game. And it just is a beautiful thing to see out of what is mostly futility, the U.S. national men's soccer team. If you're a fan of them, you don't usually have a lot to cheer for. But part of that to say, I don't know what they'll do with this, and I, I don't know yet if they'll still qualify. But just the sense of a glimmer of, okay, now something's different. Now something's new. And part of the beauty in seeing an 18-year-old in so much control and doing a good job at what he's doing is the backstory of how much struggle there's been to get something right and to get the right chemistry on the team. Jesus is saying to all of his disciples, there will be struggle, 
There will be difficulty along the way, but in all of this is an opportunity. And he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. He says, some of you will bear witness by dying for this. They'll come after you. Some people will want to stop you so much that they'll come after your very life. But there again, in those moments, will be the way in which God does something that no one else could do, and he'll bring life from it. And in the book of Acts, we get so much of this story. One of the disciples that they come after and they take his life is a disciple named Stephen. He preaches a sermon, and he's stoned to death as a result of that. And one of the very people standing at the side, observing and approving everything that happened, was someone named Saul. And he was there to hold everyone's coat so that they could do what they were doing. And in a miraculous demonstration of God's grace, that very person who was standing there approving of everything that was being done is then dramatically converted to faith in Christ. And he becomes the most motivated church planter history has ever seen. And he writes the majority of the New Testament. Was Stephen bearing witness in his death? Absolutely. And was Paul bearing witness in his conversion and then in his evangelism and church planting? Absolutely. That's what Jesus is telling them before any of it happens, in his love for them, preparing them ahead of time, that what looks like failure or defeat is going to be an opportunity out of the ashes to bear witness. Then he goes on to say, gives a, 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 an example, a parable in verse 29. He says, look at the fig tree. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is already near. So you also, when you see these things taking place, know that the kingdom of God is near. So just like out of her poverty, the widow gave and out of the ashes, there's an opportunity to bear witness. Here's just a simple story that's saying, out of springtime, there's summer and then there's harvest. It might look small now, but in spring, as you see some of you little flowers starting to come up, you can't celebrate yet, <laughs> but you know that the story hasn't ended. Winter has not won. What looked dead what looked like it wouldn't rise again, you can start to see the beginning of growth now. But even in that beginning, what it draws you to is the fullness of what is summertime and harvest. So he's saying again, as you see what will otherwise be considered darkness, know that the kingdom of God is drawing near. Know that God is on the move, that God is not absent, he's not distant, he's not off doing something else, he is right there in it, he's observing it, and he's the one bringing out of the ground new life. There's movement that you can't quite see, that you or I can't quite observe. He says, but know that it's coming. And so then he gives them two uh, commands. Watch yourselves and stay awake at all times. First, application to all of his disciples is in this process, watch yourself. In other words, don't get puffed up with pride that just because you have the answers to the test before it's given, that you'll actually pass the test. There's going to be a hardness to this. 
and watch yourself. Don't first look at everyone else and try to judge them and how they're doing. Guard your own heart and make sure it's right before God. Make sure that you're open to the movement that he wants to make and that he wants to do. And that what you care most about is his kingdom coming and being near. And then in that, stay awake, alert, look for what he's doing. Look for the opportunities to bear witness. Because out of the springtime comes summertime and harvest. So guard your own heart, watch yourself, and stay awake. Keep looking out what is possible going forward. I love reading books to my boys, and so I found a book that was also a helpful for me parable of a description of a movement that I've just enjoyed reading to them as an example of not allowing ourselves too quickly to judge a situation or a story in the wrong way. Otis is a character, a tractor. I don't know if some of you might be familiar with this, but his books are great. The first one's called Otis, and now there's nine different ones. This one's called Otis and the Scarecrow. What I love about this one is how different it is from the other ones, because all the characters on this farm are personified. And so they, they all have character. They all can communicate with one another. And so there's funny stories told about what they all do together. Well, the way this story begins is that a new person is brought to the farm. The farmer brings a scarecrow, and he plants him in the ground in the cornfield to scare off all the crows for his harvest. And so he's put into the ground. And immediately, everyone else in the community is excited because someone new has come. And so Otis, the tractor, is the first one to go up and to greet and to say hello, thinking that here's another new friend who's going to come. But what's different about this one is it says, when Otis comes to welcome him, the scarecrow didn't smile or say hello. He just stood there, a sour look on his face, staring at the cornfield. And so you're reading it, and you're saying, okay. Maybe this is going to be sort of like Velveteen Rabbit, right? You know, there's no life in this person now, but by the end, there's going to be life in this person. So then all the other animals come, and they're excited, so they want to come say hello. And they come up to him, but it says again that the scarecrow just stood there with a sour look on his face, staring at the cornfield. So they don't know what to do with this. They're so excited, they're eager, they want to welcome him, and so they say hello. But that hello generates no response. The scarecrow doesn't respond to anyone or anything, so eventually the very crows come back, and they come on top of them. And now all these other creatures in the farm are looking at him and saying, why isn't he even scaring them off? I mean, they're pecking at him, they're biting him, they're tattering his clothes. I'm not going to read the whole story to you. But here again, you're wondering, okay, when is he going to come to life? Harvest time comes, everyone's participating and playing together. And they're enjoying their time. And every time they're together, they keep looking out. And he's still alone. He's still standing there. And eventually it turns to fall, and a really, really cold rain sets in. And so all of them get together under an apple tree that overlooks the whole farm. And Otis just is looking there, and he's staring out, and says he just couldn't take his eyes off of the scarecrow. And he says, in his own mind, what does it feel like to be all alone? in the rain and so what he does is he goes out from his community from under the protection of the tree and he just pulls his tractor right up next to it and he sits there and then eventually everyone else is moved to come and to sit next to 
the scarecrow and experience the storm together. And at the end, the scarecrow never comes alive. The movement is not for the scarecrow with the sour face to become real. The movement is for everyone else who expressed welcome and love and initiation and experienced rejection to move past the rejection and to say, I'm going to love you anyway. And it's a deep book in that regard. The movement to say, we who are personified, we who have the ability to think and reason, will we move past the initial rejection, what seems like darkness, to experience something different and something new? So here's the widow. She gives everything she has. And you'd say to yourself, why doesn't he stop her? That she would give everything that she had to live on at this time when Jesus is telling them that all of this that's going to happen, everything that everyone's giving and offering to is going to end. And Jesus allows her to do it. And I think the answer is in part because what she's doing is one of the best visible demonstrations of what Jesus is himself about to do. He is about to give everything. And every one of them around him is going to say, why are you going to do it? They won't really listen. They won't really respond. They won't really love you. I mean, they're rejecting you. They're putting you up on the cross. This is not a good move. And so if his only reason to do it and willingness to do it comes from the fact that everyone's going to congratulate him and everyone's going to encourage him and everyone's going to say how great he is for what he did, then he would stop at the initial rejection, not move past it, and move on to someone else. But that's not what Jesus is in Jerusalem to do. He's experiencing the rejection. Everyone around him got a sour look on their face. But he, in his goodness, gives anyway, extravagantly, you could almost say dangerously, scandalously, to give his everything, his whole life on the cross for people that are not receiving him, are not embracing him into their community. And yes, that's what he chooses to do. And so the widow herself wasn't giving foolishly. Everything she gave to, in ultimately through her offering, giving to God, the very God that she's giving to is about to give his life for her. And by what he did to demonstrate to her that everything she's ever given will never be wasted, will never be futile. And so no, he didn't stop her. He went and did the very thing that was needed so that her offering and yours and mine and anything we could ever do could actually endure and last into eternity. And so instead of stopping it, he went through it, allowed it to happen to himself for you and for me. And then he tells all of us, stay awake because you see things going around you. Stay awake and alert. Watch yourself. What sometimes looks like a horrible situation or something you might otherwise want to avoid 
is such an amazing opportunity to bear witness. Out of our poverty, out of the ashes, out of springtime, to testify to the truth of the grave because the person who said this is someone who came out of the grave. He went into and then out of the grave for you and for me so that what does crumble around us and is confusing and what rumors and all things are going around ultimately don't have the final say. But he has the final say as the one who came out of the grave for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your love for us. That even at times when we in our selfishness and our misunderstanding in our spiritual deadness rejected you and did not receive you and welcome you that in your love for us you continued to draw near and that you did everything that was necessary to do for us and for our salvation and so we thank you for that great love And as we remember now your broken body and shed blood for us, the sacrifice that you made to give everything we do and even our darkest of days the possibility of hope and a future, we pray that you would see in our own hearts in response to you a gratitude and a thankfulness that is willing in our day and time now to stay awake and to stay alert and to bear witness with the opportunities that we're given. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.